Let's turn in our Bibles and to your handout to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Please ignore the date on the top of your handout. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, maybe because last week was September 1st and I just thought, oh yeah, it's different. And just, I have no idea. I mean, I just saw that and went, okay, wow, that was brilliant. So it is not September 10th. We are not time traveling. We are in September 8th. <clears throat> Anytime you come to a new chapter or a new section of scripture, it's always a little challenging because we go by, and I've said this many times before, we go by the, um, the chapter marks or the verse numbers that are in our Bible to help us navigate where we're, we're talking. We also have a tendency as believers and as students of the Bible to pull sections of scripture out study it intensively and then put it back in and forgetting the wider context. In particular, we have a book like 1 Corinthians, which we have to remember first and foremost was a letter. It was not a treatise. It was not intended as a textbook. <clears throat> so you can have, and just imagine, if Paul is dictating his letters, he's speaking and he, like any good orator, preacher, he is empowered by the Spirit and then he just goes off. And then he comes back and says, oh yeah, we were back, that was our topic. And of course the scribe has been writing it the whole time. And when they go back to look at it and say, is this what I intended? He goes, yeah, I, you know, I stand by what I said. The first five verses of chapter four are very often stuck with chapter three. In fact, an awful lot of commentaries that I had broke apart the uh, study using verses one through five in chapter four as a conclusion to everything that you find in chapter three. The problem is, is you can read chapter four verses one through five as a separate entity all in and of itself. In fact, I came across many sermons, listened to a few of them, even a couple commentaries that pulled out verses one through five entirely as a model for the Christian minister. And that's all it's about. And I looked at that and I went, I, well, yeah, I can see that. It's a great text for preaching to preachers. But the Word of God is intended for us all. And the audience of 1 Corinthians was not a group of preachers. The audience was the church, the people in the pew, if they had pews. They probably had cushy cushions. No. Uh, but they, they, were, they were the regular people. So to apply verses 1 through 5 only to pastors is a mistake. You have to look at it beyond it. I'm not saying it doesn't apply to pastors, but that it can also apply to us. So you have to look at it and say, ah, oh, I can dismiss what's being said here because he's not talking to me. Yeah, he is. So in that, with that preamble, um, you know, you, you have Paul ultimately, in these first four full chapters, he's dealing with the divisions in the church. 
the fact that you have some of them saying we're of Paul, some of them saying we're of Apollo, some of them saying we're of Peter, and some of them saying, well, we're of Jesus. And it's creating this odd division, and he's trying to address that. Yeah, he goes off into these other um, ancillary conversations, but he keeps coming back to this theme of unity. So let's look at this passage and say, well, why are you struggling with it? Well, I did, because I read it and went, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what his topic is. In fact, I haven't thought about it. If you were to take one of my emails, just any random email to either to family or to a business communication or where I'm trying to counsel somebody who's having some struggles, and you pull out one paragraph and say, this entire letter is about this, you're probably not reading it in context. You're also not inside my head as to why I suddenly went from this topic to that topic and back to the other one. Well, let's look at it. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now I have to stop there, of course, as I like to do, because there's some very interesting things happening in the Greek. He says you should regard us as servants of Christ. So, circle the word servants. What is the typical Greek word for servant or slave in the New Testament? Anybody remember? Doulos. It's not that word here. Doulos is not being used. Now, doulos is, it is the most common word. Technically means slave. And actually, in most Greek languages, what it meant. Um, one person actually did a little study back in the early um, English translations of the Bible, going back to the Geneva Bible and the King James Bible. And we're, at, we're trying to dig around and figure out why did the translators translate it as servants, the word doulos, and not slave. Well, it's because it was right in the middle of the slave trade issue. And they're just saying, you, you can't use that word because that has a different connotation in our understanding. But that's not the word that's used here. Paul uses a different word. He uses the word hyper, or hyperatis. Hyperatis. Yeah, I pronounced that right, and now it'll be on the test in three weeks. Um, this word actually means the rower of lowest rank. The rower. The rower of lowest rank. So that means it's the person who's in the bottom of the boat. If you're thinking, if you, you can even picture the, the big galleys where they have two rows of oars coming out of the side. The ones at the very bottom, they're at sea level or below, and they're in the worst part because all the refuse and, and uh, sewage from above comes down to the bottom row. So it's the worst place to be. They're also the first to die if the boat starts to sink because you're not going to be able to get out. It's just not going to happen. 
I mean, there was this horrible tragedy this past week of people in the bottom of a boat, fire starts at the top, and it sank before they could get out. And whatever escape hatches they had, they couldn't get to. So Paul is describing himself as the lowest of the low. And that becomes a theme of this entire chapter. So he starts out with a word that everyone in the room goes, oh, that's an interesting description of yourself, Paul. And then he further comes to it later. We miss this completely in the English. Completely. And we'll see this later. I mean, down in verse 14, you'll see it very evidently what he's trying to describe. So we are to be the servants of Christ and the stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, stewards is a very different word than this servant word, this lowest of the low. A steward is an entrusted um, uh, manager of an estate. They are someone that they don't own it, but they manage it. They are um, an employee, maybe. They might even be a slave or a servant. But they are entrusted with something, and here it's the mysteries of God. But I immediately jump to stories of embezzlement in my mind. Where someone had been, had entrusted someone to steward an estate. Or to handle the money in the business, like an accountant. I mean, a company has to have a lot of trust in the accountant for the operation because you know how to cook the books. It's simple if you know what you're doing. Uh, when I was a retail store manager and we started missing cash in our register, um, we realized that we had some inadequate security procedures with our cash. And so I had to think like a thief and close off all of the possible avenues for an employee or anyone else to pilfer the drawer. And even then it's not perfect. You know? So someone who's entrusted is they're faithful. They in fact verse three, they are, it is required of the steward that they be found faithful. He actually calls Timothy in chapter 4, verse 17, as being faithful, as someone who is trustworthy to carry the mysteries of God, which he has talked about in chapter 2, verse 7. It talks about... Um, Uh, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed from the ages for our glory. Over in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 7, he talks about if even lifeless... Uh, no, I wrote 14, verse 2. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, and he utters the mysteries of the Spirit. And then later on in Ephesians, Paul writes, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. And then chapter 3 of Ephesians, for 10 verses, he talks about the mysteries of God. 
how the mystery was known to me by revelation, as I've written it briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And to bring to light to everyone what is the plan for the mystery hidden in the ages of God and created, who created all things. Paul talks about the idea that the wisdom of God is foolishness to, to men. It is a mystery. And he's been entrusted with this great truth. That's what he's talking about here. So he's setting this all up. But what's he setting it up for? Verse 3, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human, in, in, by any human court or literally any human day. It's an interesting word choice. You could have either court or day there. And I think if you take the word day, he's comparing it to the day of the Lord later when he talks about when the Lord will come back. Now think about this for a second. When we are entrusted with the mysteries of God and we are to be found faithful and we are a steward, we should never use what we are entrusted with for our benefit. We are entrusted with the mystery of God to present it to others. We already have all the wealth of God and Christ in us. We don't need to hold on to it or try to enrich ourselves because we have the secret. The prosperity gospel does that very thing. I know the secret. And if you send me $1,000, I can help you with that. I can show you one more glimmer. Now, about two months ago, this book came out called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel by a young man named Kosti Hinn, H-I-N-N. That last name ring a bell? Benny Hinn. This is Benny Hinn's nephew. And it, Benny Hinn, or Kosti, was inside the organization. And he is no longer, he is now outside, fully, fully got full of the gospel of Christ and has written an expose. Mm. Now what's fascinating, if you've been, if you follow the Christian news, I have a headline here from Tuesday, which is quite amazing that I'd be coming to this concept here in this passage. Benny Hinn renounces the prosperity gospel. And I've watched the video. He is as repentant as you could, as you could imagine him to be. And he says things like, I'm sorry to say that prosperity has gone crazy and I'm correcting my own theology and you all need to know it. Because when I read the Bible now, I don't see the Bible in the same eyes I saw 20 years ago. I think it's an offense to the Lord. It's an offense to say, give $1,000. It's an offense to the Holy Spirit to place a price on the gospel. And I'm done with it. I will never again ask you to give $1,000 or any amount. Because I think the Holy Ghost is fed up with it. I'm just quoting him. Wow. 
I think it hurts the gospel. So I'm making this statement for the first time in my life, and frankly, I don't care what people think about me anymore. When they invite me to telethons, I don't think they're going to be very happy. (laughs) Because when you look at the Word of God, and if I hear it one more time, break the back of debt with $1,000, I'm going to rebuke you. Because that is buying the gospel. It's buying the blessing. It's grieving the Holy Spirit. If you're not giving because you love Jesus, don't bother giving. Wow. Great God. I hear something like that, and I, of course, the terrible skeptic in me goes, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, prove it. Let, I want to see this five years from now. That's really mean, on mean spirit, and very arrogant on my part to think that. Trust but verify. Trust but verify. I would say let's celebrate that and go. Yeah, he's still a full gospel healer. He's just saying I'm not going to put a price on it. And it's interesting to contrast that to a month ago, when a very well-known evangelical scholar, teacher, preacher, best-selling author says, I don't believe the Bible anymore. I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God and I want nothing to do with it. Josh Harris became an apostate on Instagram. Great place to tell the world of your, your thinking. You have that over here. A month later you have someone who is held up as the example of the prosperity gospel excesses saying no and you wonder how much his nephew's witness was Mm. to him I only bring that up because you look at this idea of being found faithful and the requirement we have as entrustees we are trustees of the gospel each one of us not just Paul not just Timothy. Each one of us is entrusted as stewards of the gospel who are servants. We are the lowest of the low. We don't deserve anything. And Paul says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you by any human in any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. We may not know, and I could say, no, but none of us knows anybody else's heart in this room or in this church or in any church community. It's 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord looks at the heart. 1 Kings 8.39 The Lord knows the hearts of men. We may not know, so we may not judge. We can be judgy, which may not be a nice thing. We can be critical, which is a valid thing to do with someone like a Benny Hinn. We cannot be his judge. We cannot judge his heart and his soul. Because we don't know what's behind it. We don't know what's underneath it. We don't know what's happening. Paul even says, because most likely there were people that the news had come back to him were being highly judgmental and highly critical of Paul. And he just said, 
I'm not aware of anything that I've done, but I'm not acquitted because it's the Lord that judges the heart. And yet you find in other passages where Paul is saying, I wish I didn't do that, but I did. You know, he's, he's not uh, one of these preachers who doesn't open his soul. And, but he's pretty wide open here. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment for, for, for the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Because then each one will receive his commendation from God. He goes on. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. What things? It says, I have applied all these things. I am asking you to help me answer the question, what things? Is there a list? Is there a thought? What is he talking about here? I have applied all these things to me, to myself, and to Apollos, who's not even in the same room. He's in another continent. Or another state, another country, not continent, another country. Because Apollos is probably over in Corinth. Paul is in Ephesus writing this letter. So now that I've given you a full 25 seconds to come up with a brilliant answer, what is he talking about? These things. Any idea? It's an important question because everything that comes after is applied to what comes before. Oh, come on. It's only early morning on Sunday. <laughs> I don't have the answer. Hmm? Yeah, I can't help you with this one because I just looked at that and he's talking about these things. But what is it? Is he talking about these things being the unity of the church? The, the idea of... Um, Servanthood, the ideas uh, in, in, in chapter 3 about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of men. And I would say yes to all of them. In fact, any of you could have answered anything and I would have gone, good. You get the gold star and you get to pass the class. Uh, because it's everything he's written up to this point. A full three chapters. I have written these things and I have applied them to myself and to Apollos. Why is he bringing Apollos up again? Because the whole theme of the, this thing has been their disunity. And he's saying, Paul and Apollos, Paul, myself and Apollos are no different. You cannot separate us in going one's better than the other and follow him or follow that guy. You can't do that. You had a thought? Well, yeah, if you look at the paragraph uh, above the, where we started, if you look at uh, the word judged, judgment, judges, regard, commendation, that seems to be pretty much the theme is judging others. Mm -hmm. 
So to me, if you're going to have to ask something, what's that applies to? Especially it's very immediate. Right. Especially it's if he's in all it. All these things. Right. If he's been thinking in a linear process, he's going to think about what he just talked about. Saying, I've been talking about being judgmental and judging others based on some criteria. And I apply the same criteria to Paul, to myself, and to Apollos. Guys, we're all the same. Stop this division among you. Because it's interesting, most preachers, when they preach on the passage in first chapter 1 about I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, they don't cite chapter 4. They forget that he's still talking about it four chapters later. And you kind of can, in another sense, sum it all up, what you said, what Carl just said, is that he's a servant of Christ and he's a steward of the mystery. And so he's applying those things. I'm a servant and I'm a steward. Yeah. And so, and if you keep reading, so that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Exactly. So follow my example of being a servant and a steward. And then there won't be divisions. You'll know about the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of right. God. And then you won't be saying, I'm a book, I'm a or, or, as it says, to get all proud about your affiliation. Right. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just a label you've stuck on something. Right. You know, it's interesting. We get really tied up into labels and um, identity. Um, it's actually an interesting little, in fact, this is a total rabbit trail, but now you made me think about it. Uh, 2013. Uh, a book was published by a guy named Robert Galbraith called The Cuckoo's Call, I think was the name of the title. And yeah, nobody cared. You know, it was published by a, you know, a mid-sized publisher. It sold a few thousand copies, and, but they began to slow down. And in fact, the book scan, which is the one way that they are able to measure book sales, in one week in July, it sold 43 copies. Woohoo, big deal. The next week, it sold 17,500 copies and hit number one in the New York Times bestseller list and did not relinquish its position. One week. Anybody know the story? Not you, Lisa. Anybody know the story why? Because it was leaked that Robert Galbraith was J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter. She had written this book under a pen name because she wanted to try her hand on adult mysteries without having everyone get all excited about a new book by the author of Harry Potter. It was leaked by her lawyer who, according to the story, the lawyer's spouse told someone, <laughs> kind of a whisper, who then told someone who told someone who told someone, and then it hit the newspapers, she sued the lawyer because they had non-disclosure agreements. Uh, the, the fee was to donate a few million dollars to a charity and her book, and she now has two careers. She has the Robert Galbraith career and the Harry Potter career. Was she a different person one week than the next? No. But the world 
identified and went all celebrity on it. Because the book isn't that good. It had been rejected by every major publisher in the industry. Nobody wanted it because it was not that good. But because a new name was attached to it, suddenly, oh my goodness, we put a label on it and suddenly it's worth something. One thing that struck me from the very beginning when you talk about the word for servant, why he used this unusual word for servant, and the contrast between that word for servant and steward, the servant that you described at the bottom of the boat is the lowest, lowest type of, the low. of slave you could have. A steward is the highest type of slave you could have, like exactly. Joseph in the story in Genesis and yep. how you know he was the, the steward of the Pharaoh's house. Mm -hmm. And I think that contrast is for a reason. That's very intentional, and yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're wise to bring it out, and uh, I missed uh, saying it, because neither of them own anything, mm -hmm. but one of them is a piece of trash. The other is held in high regard, but still don't own anything. Reminds me of Mordecai, too, whenever he was lifted up by the king and, you know, he would mm -hmm. ride the king's horse and everybody would have to bow. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't the king. But he wasn't the king. But he was designated to have that kind of power and prestige. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, when you get power and prestige, it goes to your head. Which is what Paul writes about in the rest of this verse. I write all this these things for your benefit that you, plural, may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you, plural, may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And by the way, the phrase to not go beyond what it is written has created hundreds of thousands of spilled words by scholars. What do you mean by that? Because it's the only time Paul ever uses this phrase. And it's, I mean, what does it mean? Does he say, don't go beyond, in fact, I've got one, two, three, four, five different variations. Okay, first, is it an idiom? Like, don't color outside the lines. Just stay within, you know, stay within the rules. Is that what that meant? Is it referring to penmanship? practice where children being taught the Greek language they would have wax tablets that under the wax were the letters and they would have to trace in the wax to trace it to learn how to form the letters is that what he's saying don't go beyond what's written I mean don't don't start putting curly cues on your your Greek letters because that's not appropriate does, is he referring to some sort of document that the church used as a disciplinary practice? One that's been lost. We don't know. Um, is he referring just to the Old Testament? Because there's some that use this to say, don't go beyond the Bible. Problem is, the Bible hadn't been written yet when Paul wrote this. He was actually writing the Bible as he wrote this verse. So he would only be able to refer to the Old Testament. 
Is that what he's meaning? Or, as one scholar actually said, he likes the fact that he is referring in this letter to the words where he quotes the Old Testament in the first three chapters. You have chapter 1, verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 31, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Then in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, um, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And he's saying, don't go beyond this. So I'm trying to teach you. The God's wisdom and unity amongst us all is what I've been talking about. So no, I don't know the answer. Nobody does. But it certainly is interesting. As scholars, uh, some have received their doctorate on their dissertation about what was Paul meaning, and they write an endless array of what that means. I'll just point it out for you, and we'll just move on, because I think the thrust of the passage is much more important that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. And then verse 7. It's a very interesting change in the Greek. It's no longer you plural. It's you singular. Verse 6 is you plural. He's talking to the group. Verse 7, it's you singular. And look what his right, he's writing. Who sees anything different in you, Steve? What have you done, Steve, that you haven't already received? (laughs) If you received it, Steve, why are you boasting as if you did not receive it? See how personal it gets? It's really powerful. It's like, you you know, you you, you watch pastors who are preaching, and they may have a hard passage that's um, very pointed, and if you notice, there's an intentionality of them not focusing on a single person as their eyes pass the congregation, lest they want to say, you're the problem. (laughs) Because you don't want, you're trying to say it's you, plural, But then suddenly, what if he says, but Tom? And you get called out of the room. Now, the Spirit of God, in a setting like that, will convict you as if it's talking to you. Because how many times have you sat there? That sermon was meant for me. I haven't even talked with the guy. How did he know that? Well, that's the Spirit of God poking at your heart. But here, Paul gets specific and he's talking about this idea of being all puffed up about who you are now think of it this way Um, the two great commandments Jesus said love your love God with your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as what as yourself which suggests you already love yourself 
So this guy writes this column in the Gospel Coalition blog called The Beauty of Low Self-Esteem. He starts out, the guy named is Ronnie Martin, he says, I'm just going to say it, I love me. <laughs> Go ahead, say it to yourself a few times. I love me. I don't know how it made you feel, but I can guarantee it won't make you a liar. <laughs> what a perfect phrase. Look in the mirror. Not bad, huh? No? Well, whether you love or hate what you see, chances are you will keep looking. None of us has a problem with low self-esteem. Scripture tells us we were born with the opposite issue. We think of ourselves as a little more pretty, a little more talented, a little more worthy, and a little more deserving of just about everything in this life. Far from having naturally broken hearts, our hearts are naturally bloated with the calories of self-consumption and filled with obscene levels of self-obsession. We have been taught that there is nothing more valuable than how much we value ourselves. Sometimes we like to doll it up with introspective words like self-realization or self-fulfillment, but it's all the same thing. In fact, one of the preachers I was listening to, it was a sermon from 20 some odd years ago, and he said, we're in the midst of this self-esteem craze right now. We're like, this is the solution to education. This is the solution to all the world's ills. He says, what a bunch of hooey. It's the problem with everything. People don't lack self-esteem. The problem is they don't realize where they, they are in relation to God. Well, this guy writes here, The frightening thing about self-esteem is the staggering lengths God goes to completely eradicate it from the depths of our souls in order to produce depth in our souls. If the Lord loves a humble and contrite heart, it means He equally abhors a prideful and defiant one. One of the prevailing themes of the Bible is how God makes nothing out of men by flipping the object of their esteem from themselves back to Him. This whole idea of being so puffed up we can go to Romans 12, and we always look at Romans 12 when we read verses 1 and 2 about um, presenting your bodies as living sacrifice, don't be conformed to the world, and then we stop. Chapter 12, verse 3 writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We, we have to fight it. And we, we all know this. I'm preaching to a choir here. I, I know that. But it's certainly good to remind it, to be reminded of. Paul has these three rhetorical questions where he just goes off. Who sees anything different in you? Well, only you do. What do you have that you didn't receive? Didn't he just say in chapter 3 that all is yours? 
and you are Christ and Christ is God's, you have absolutely everything you need in Christ. Nothing more. The rest of it is just decoration. And yet, you have these Corinthians are so puffed up and so full of themselves that they don't see it. And he goes on in verse 8 and following. In fact, verse 8, you could, if you were to read it out loud in Paul's voice, it's dripping with sarcasm. You have to, that's the only way you can read it properly. Already? You have all you want? Already you become rich? Without us, you've become kings. And I would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. You have people who are so full of themselves and so self-satisfied, they're acting as if they are kings to whom there is no authority. No one can tell a king what to do. No one. There's, they are the final authority. And so these people have set themselves up as the final authority. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, which is his biography of his conversion, he writes this, What mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference, and he capitalizes it. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice of no, no admittance. And that's what I wanted. I wanted some area, some however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. Don't we have that? Don't we tend to carve out that one little part saying this is mine and nobody, don't touch that. That's mine. You can't have it. God, you got everything else. What more do you want, buddy? That's someone who set themselves up as king, who's puffed up. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He talks about being last of all. Oh, this is really a cool passage. When a Roman general had a grand victory somewhere, either big campaign or conquered a world or something or other. They would come back into Rome with a mighty procession, big parade. At the front of the parade is the general. He's, you know, walking in front or he's on his big horse or his chariot. Behind him are his lieutenants, his colonels, all the other leaders. Then came the legions of soldiers, all marching in unison. Then came the prisoners who were slated for slavery. So the cheers turned from cheers to mockery. But last of all, 
in the procession were the prisoners that were slated for the Colosseum. The ones sentenced to death. The last of all. That's what he's talking about. God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ. But you are wise in Christ. We are fools for Christ's sake. Chapter 1, verse 27, But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. found this one quote says you will grow weary of being treated like the village idiot every time you take the Bible seriously you're in the workplace you're in the world and you say well the reason why I won't do that is because my faith in Christ will not allow me to because it's wrong let's look at that you idiot you're such a fool this past week, um, received a book proposal via email. Something completely, we, we would never touch it in a million years. It was how to be a good Buddha. And it's like, you obviously didn't check our website. You obviously didn't do any research. You found my name in some book that said religious we handle religious product. You sent it to me, and so we responded saying, well, it's not a good fit for our agency. We represent things intended for the Christian market. What came back at me was one of the most vitrolic and astounding attack on Christianity I have read in a long time. You people you are hypocrites. You're killing babies. You're raping tiny children. Quote. You have no love for the LGBT community. The last 20 years has been one of the worst. I mean, just this on and on and on and on and on and on and on. What you should be is like us, who are kind and good and loving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not seeing this comparison um, but I realized what she did in this letter is exactly the hatred of the world of the positions that we Christians take on social issues because it's based on scripture and I imagine if I, and of course, you never engage someone like that, so it's just, you know, thank you for your input, you know, kind of thing. But you just ignore it, because you can't, you're not going to have a debate where you're going to win the debate. What's the point? But you want to just say, you're going to have a conversation with someone, the first place you start is, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? If they don't, you've got a problem. Because everything that you base your faith on is found in Holy Scripture. To that person, I'm a village idiot. 
And the village idiot is going to be part of our business card for the rest of our lives on this planet. Because Christianity is under attack from the world and they've done a really good job of making that you have anything other than a uh, uh, accepting position on various social issues. You're a hypocrite and unloving and uncaring. It, re- it reminded me of one time where I saw an interview with a variety of uh, super pastors and it was Larry King who was going after these three guys. Finally, one of them, T.D. Jake, says, you know, Larry, this entire conversation has been about what we're against, but you've never asked us what we're for. And it top stopped Larry King in his tracks. Because then, T.D. Jakes was able to say, we believe in this, we believe in this, we believe in this. And they make everything else look so small by comparison. We are fools for Christ's sake. I hope we feel that way because it's true. We are weak and you are strong. You're held in, in, in honor, we in disrepute. And he's talking to these guys who are high society. They're loved by their constituents. And he's saying, you got it wrong. You're not kings. He has this litany here of nine different things. Hunger, starting in verse 11. Hunger, thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, which means to be treated roughly, homeless, manual labor. And by the way, manual labor was considered a sign of unworthiness by those who were philosophers and the sophists. Reviled, persecuted, and slandered. Every single one of those things in and of themselves, if you're hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, etc., etc., that was considered contemptible to the Corinthian culture and probably to a lot of those within the Corinthian church who were trying desperately not to be seen as contemptible. We have become, verse 13, and are still like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. As one commentator wrote, the church that learns more from Wall Street and Madison Avenue than from the Via Della Rosa has lost its footing and will ultimately lose its crown. The church that learns more from Wall Street and Madison Avenue than from the Via Della Rosa will lose its footing, has lost its footing, and will lose its crown. We are fools for Christ's sake. Golly. You know, like I said, this isn't something you put on the brochure to hand to visitors when they come to church. Welcome to our church. We're fools. We're idiots. We're the village idiots. And we're going to be homeless. We're going to be reviled. And ain't it great? Well, why don't we put that on our brochure? Because the alternative is actually a bait and switch. We are called to transform this world through our lives, through our faith in Christ. We are called to a higher calling than what the world thinks. 
and they don't understand it. And that's the point. Yeah. Hmm? Give the Drew Brees example. Oh, there was Drew Brees this past week. I don't know if you heard about this. Yeah. Quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. He did a video, very simple video, I watched it, and it was basically encouraging high school students to take their Bible to school. On, on day, October 3rd, take your Bible to school day. It's a whole it was, yeah, it was take your Bible to school day. And it was a kind of a promo. And that's a cool thing, because Drew Brees is a very strong Christian. Well, that particular video was produced by Focus on the Family. Doesn't say it anywhere on the video. You don't even have the credits have it. Just simply a nice video. So the headline re reads in the paper, Drew Brees does video for anti-LGBTQ organization. Amen. What? <laughs> Drew Brees got angry. And he came back in his social media posts and he said, look, I believe that as a Christian, two things. Love God with your mind, soul, body, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. This video has nothing to do with anything about that other than to say live your faith in the world. And to put any sort of any other meaning to it is ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. But because there's, there's this attempt to undermine absolutely everything or anyone who makes a public proclamation. And we're not famous people. We're just us. But if we make a public proclamation, most likely there's someone in the room who's going to come up to you and say, you're an idiot. How can you believe that fault or all? You've been brainwashed by your parents. It's not real. And you hate gay people. What? Oh, and you're white, so you're racist too. What? I mean, just, oh my goodness sake. This is what we are fighting against. And here you have Paul hearing of a church that's full of itself. And boy, when we get into the rest of the... I mean, we obviously didn't get through this passage, but we get into chapters 5 and 6. This church is in trouble. But they have a lot of people who are puffed up. They're acting like kings. They're thinking, we want to be admired by the world, so we will act this way. So they will think we're good. And he says, no. You are being held in honor, but we are being held in disrepute. Well, it should be, we should all be held in disrepute. We should all consider ourselves as the refuse of all things. We should all be the hyperites. The bottom rower. Because that's our place. But you know, a bottom rower is still pretty important. The guy just kicked back, put his hands behind his head, kicked up his feet. You know what? The boat ain't going to go as fast. Its work is not complete. And if suddenly there's a revolt on the bottom floor, the boat stops moving. A servant who knows their role and is willing to work it and pull, no matter what, 
That's the one that is doing the work of the Lord. That's the metaphor. So, we've run out of time. Let's end this with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for our time together. Amazing how you do this to, to me as the teacher here, Lord. Every time I come to a passage, I think, how am I going to fill an hour? And yet, your word is so full and so complete, we can start one place and we end up finding this reservoir that is endless. Only your living word, your word to us, can have that kind of power. And Lord, we humbly sit here and listen to this and just... All we can do is say, thank you, Lord. We praise you in all that we do and say. Let us move into our time of formal worship and lift our hearts in adoration for a God who brings so much to us and requires only our lives. And we are thankful to give it. In Jesus' name, amen.